This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. The 70s were the new thing. And you, met all, you all went to school or something like that? Yeah, well, we were all going to different schools and uh, living in a generally the same area of California. None of us are from California. That's a come we don't sound like the Eagles. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, we just wanted to get discovered, and LA is a good place to do it. You know, there's a lot of music, a lot of rock bands, a lot of everything going on in Los Angeles. Is it hard to break through, like for, for any group that just forms? Not if we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have faith in yourself, you know. It's you hard. Keep at it. A lot of people get together, you know, and they change members every other week. Mm-hmm. You know, they go, "Oh, who are they this time?" You know. Right. You gotta stick together and just keep working. Uh, what has the reaction been like towards you? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> you scared the birds away. <laughs> <laughs> This is Edward Van Halen saying, are you watching Countdown? This is Michael Anthony from Van Halen saying, have you had your portion of Countdown today? David Lee Roth from Van Halen here, Australia, and Countdown has really got me. Hey, everybody, this is Alex from Van Halen. I'm telling you, life should be dull without Countdown. Hollywood, another episode of When Rock Ruled the Charts. Today's date is February 10th, 1978. Not today's actual date, but the date that we're looking at. And why is February 10th, 1978 a significant day? Well, it's the day that Van Halen's debut album was released. This year, we've done a lot of Van Halen thing. We've gone through all the 12 studio albums. You know, it's just kind of a full-on tribute to Van Halen over the course of this year. When we do these When Rock Ruled the Charts, the episode is more dedicated towards what was going on within the charts on that day. It just happens that the day that we're talking about is the day that Van Halen released their debut album. What's going on, man? You ready to get into some of this craziness? Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of 70s music in total. So uh, this chart was very, very interesting. It was a interesting trip down memory lane. (laughs) (laughs) We will share that trip a little bit. But yeah, when somebody asked me, like, do you love 70s music? I'm like, eh, I don't know. Because everything's like Jeremiah was a bullfrog to me. That's the first (laughs) thing that comes up. And I'm like, eh, not really. I like the, the bebop of the 50s. I like the Motown of the 60s, 70s just kind of gets lost. But there's like, you don't like Kiss? You don't like Zeppelin? I said, I don't like, I didn't say I didn't like any of it. Yeah. I say, if I have a preference, that is the absolute, I go to the 90s before I go to the 70s. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And I think it's probably because technically, musically, neither one of us grew up in this era. So for me, the 70s 
yes, I was alive. Yes, I was growing up, but music didn't become a major thing for me until I hit high school in 1980. So the 70s for me was, yeah, I was around uh, seeing and listening to my brothers and sisters albums and listening to AM radio and things like that. But I wasn't fully engulfed in music uh, like I was once I hit high school. You hit high school to me. I've said it often on this show. The grown up rock years to me are really those high school years where you're hanging out with friends and you're sharing music and you're going to the malls and reading the magazines. And you know, you know what I mean? Your teen years, basically. Yeah. And for me, I, I was born in 69. So this is my adolescent years and I'm the oldest. Right. So I have no way for Led Zeppelin to get to me. I have no way for Kiss to get me. I don't have a way for Van Halen to get to me because my parents are not listening to that music. They're not first generation here. They weren't born here. So it doesn't even basically hit their radar and they're not into rock. They're into completely different things. So I would have had to have an older friend to help me out with that. And I didn't have that. So yeah, it's a completely different thing. Yeah. And for me, I'm the one that picked this date, February 10th, 1978. One of the reasons I picked this date to spotlight the debut of Van Halen's album was because I had read a lot of stuff where rock music was kind of on the outs in 1978 when the debut album came out. Bands that were huge in America, like the Aerosmiths and the Kisses, they were on a losing streak at that point, right? Aerosmith was releasing Draw the Line. Where was Kiss at in 78? Was that around Dynasty? Four solo albums. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So the four solo albums. So they had already seen the pinnacle of their success at that point. So American rock and roll just wasn't as strong as it was going to become at some point in the uh, early to mid eighties, basically. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to do it. Plus for me, when we do these, when rock ruled the charts, episodes. I really love taking that trip down memory lane and just looking and seeing what the charts look like at that time. This will be, I think, the third one we've done. The first one was Slave to the Grind, debut unit number one. The second one was the MTV two-part series, which we did. So this will be the third one that we've done. And I've the feedback has been really good on these. I've enjoyed doing these episodes uh, and the research that you do and put into this is really cool. So I just enjoy these episodes basically, and it'll be fun to look at what the rock charts look like in 1978 and see if you identify with any of the music that's on here, because there was some music that I identified with for sure, but there was a lot of hard listens for me in this. And I know there were for you as well. Yeah, what you're going to find out when we go through this thing is some of these bands peaked out in the mid-70s and you basically never heard from them again, and they're still running their career off of that peak. Rock was hitting the charts. It just wasn't sustaining. So it would hit and then completely drop off just a few weeks later. It wasn't hanging on for you know months and months and months on the charts. So yeah, it's a little bit interesting, but yeah, some of these songs, I'm like, oh my God, no wonder I don't listen to this shit. Yeah, and some people asked, did Van Halen save rock and roll in 1978? I think we're going to find the answer to that at the end of all of this. But before we do that, you know we got to do this.
It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. Okie doke. So tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. Oftentimes, I try to identify with bands that I really like or songs I really like, but sometimes it gets a little difficult because we want to turn you on to new music and some of it is hit or miss for me. Uh, so I don't necessarily love everything that we do on the Crank It Up Spotlight, but I always think there's some redeeming qualities in it. So tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight is one of those type bands. Uh, it's a band called Long Shadows Dawn, and they recently put out an album called Isle of Wrath. Long Shadows Dawn is kind of a supergroup, if you will. I don't know if I'd call it a supergroup, but it features vocalist Doogie White, and Doogie's done stuff with Michael Schenker, especially most recently, and then he's done some stuff with Rainbow. Uh, and there's a Swedish guitar player named Emil Norberg, and he was in a band called Persuader. I'm not familiar with any of that stuff, but check out this song. It's called Deal With The Preacher.
So I took a listen to this album when it came out. It came out a few months ago. And I remember, I'm like, all right, Doogie. Eh, Doogie can be hit and miss for me, mm-hmm. right? Because he has that melodic uh, voice sometimes, and sometimes it's very new wave of British heavy metal type. A little bit screamy, a little bit, I don't know, opera sometimes. I don't mind the rasp. It's just something about Doogie's voice that I don't quite get. It might be one of the reasons he's not exactly one of the biggest names in rock, because there's something about him that just does not connect with me. And my guess is it doesn't create mass appeal. This thing was basically, you know, new wave of British heavy metal with a modern production. I just, the whole album, the courses are just, they're there. They're meh. They're just not anything super special to me. And Doogie doesn't take it over the top. Yeah, I think when I did this album, when I listened to this album, I kind of almost nailed what I thought you would think of it because everything you just said, I was like, that's that's what Sonny's going to think of it. And to be honest, I'm sort of in the same boat. For me, I think it's Doogie's voice that makes it a little new wave of British heavy metal, but I don't necessarily think the album is that. There were definite spots of Deep Purple in this record for me, and I think really that's probably the Hammond B3 organ a lot of times. But the album as a whole has some redeeming music on it. Deal With The Preacher is sort of one of those tunes that's all right with me. If you don't like that song, I don't think you're going to like the record at all. If you do like that song, then go stream it and check it out for yourself. Uh, because there are some redeeming qualities on the record. As a whole, I'm kind of in the same boat as uh, Sonny is with this one. So that's it. Again, the band is called Long Shadows Dawn. The album is called Isle of Wrath, which is pretty cool. (laughs) And the song is called Deal With the Preacher. Check it out for yourself. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like. And leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. Getting on to the topic at hand. So we're looking at February 10th, 1978, and Van Halen releases their album. How is rock doing? Well, Van Halen didn't even chart until a month later. That tells you everything you need to know about an album that went diamond and sold millions and millions and millions of copies worldwide. Can't even hit the chart for a month with the songs that they had. And now that you listen, you're like, how did that not hit the charts? Especially when you hear some of the stuff that was on the chart. So basically what we usually do in these things is sizing up the competition. Like what's there that is preventing Van Halen for a month to hit the charts. Now we're in the middle of pay to play and cocaine rolling. And you know, you call the radio stations and all that stuff that you hear about and you've seen all the movies and the HBO specials and all that stuff. We are in the middle of all that, but then we are talking about Warner brothers too. So they're now slouches. So obviously it also probably had to do with Van Halen's a new band. And there's not a lot of times where new bands just come out of the gate and hit, Oh, but they're superstars. They're like a super group. They weren't a super group in 78. Nobody knew who the hell they were in 78. Right. So it doesn't quite work that way. So just kind of keep that in mind as we're taking this trip down. It's an interesting time, too, for for music as a whole in 78, because and you'll see it once we start going through all this, the charts are filled with rock, with yacht rock, with pop. And we're coming out of the golden age of disco at this point. So it really is overall just an interesting time for music. 
it's the turn of a decade, right? You're going into the, you're getting ready to go into the eighties with this. So proceed. Yeah. And I think the disco comment, yeah, we're coming kind of out of the age because it didn't last that long. Right. But we'll talk about it. There's a movie that gets released that really elongates disco for probably about another year, right? So no, disco is not completely dead to probably somewhere in 79. Some would even say early eighties. It was not the new flavor in town anymore. And that's why the movie got made to begin with that we're going to talk about. And that's what kind of made it last for a little bit longer. All right. So like we usually do on these things, we're trying to just talk about what we would call rock, hard rock type acts. Some of these are stretching the envelope a little bit because it is 1978. So yes, there's distorted guitar out there, but it's not like the eighties where everything's a plugged in distorted guitar, no matter who you are, including Michael Jackson, right? So it doesn't quite work that way in 78. So just kind of go with me, but uh, yeah, we're not talking about all 200 albums on the billboard 200. We're going to skip around a little bit. So starting out of the gate at number 200, we got the Bay city rollers with greatest hits. So right away we start with Pooney. That's not rock. Yes. It's not really rock, but it, you know, it's Bay city rollers. What are you going to do? This album had peaked at 77. So, you know, Scottish band, they had released 11 singles from 71 to 75 and couldn't even smell the United States. They, nobody knew who the hell they were. 76, they released this single called Saturday Night, and it goes to number one on the Hot 100. My guess is some movie, some AM, something happened. I don't know. I was seven years old. I didn't do the research on that. But then the eight out of the next 10 singles hit the top 100. So they released this greatest hits because they're trying to get you exposed to the songs that you may have missed when nobody knew who the hell they were. So that's kind of what this is all about. And obviously it's on the way down because it's number 200. At number 199, we've got the Blue Oyster Cult with Spectres, and it's on the way down. It peaked at number 43. So the album had done well because it was coming off a platinum-selling album called Ages of Fortune, which has Don't Fear the Reaper on it, right? So obviously it was kind of had some momentum. They had some momentum as a whole. They released three singles off this record, uh, Spectres, called Going Through the Motions, I Love the Night, and Godzilla. And I was surprised to find out none of them charted, even though Godzilla is probably one of their most popular songs. Honestly, they didn't have another top 40 hit until burning for you in 81. So they peaked, fizzled out, came back for a second and then fizzled out again. And is still basically touring on the classics that they had out there. Skipping down to number 195, we got the news, Ted Nugent with cat scratch fever. This album had peaked at number 17, by the way, third solo album. It went triple platinum. It includes two of his biggest hits, cat scratch fever and Wang Dang sweet poontang. I love that title. You bet your ass, you bet your ass, baby. We're here to do it to you on time tonight, 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 to do it Nashville, Tennessee. I do believe it's fine, fine, some fine, double time, all mine, a little bit of rock and roll, a little bit of here, a little bit of there, a little bit of tomorrow, another night out there. We're gonna do it to you, we got to do it to you, we got to have it every night, we got to do it to you, Jimmy. Fall down on the pavement, you hear me talking at you. I think I know what you like, baby. I say, I think. I think I say, I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say that, I say that ain't nobody. I say that ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow, now is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? Do you hear me? Hey, it's good for you. 
I thought we agreed that that will forever be known on this show as Wang Dang Sweet Poonie Tang. Yeah, well, I'm not the one who brought that up, so whatever. <laughs> and then at 189, we got a live album by Foghat called Foghat Live. This thing had peaked at number 11. So obviously Foghat was prominent in music at this point. So they had four gold albums, they had a platinum album, and they decided to release this live album that really got released in 77. And you got to remember that going through this whole chart. We're talking about February 10th, 78. So there's a lot of 1977 and some 1976 albums on this chart because in in February 10th, 78, and in the 70s and early 80s in general, you didn't really get an album that hits it immediately and stays and then it kind of drops off because the folks that people are loyal to, they kind of stay loyal to, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of 77 albums on here. And this Fog Hat Live ends up being their best-selling album because it's the only album they had that went double platinum. This album has six songs. You can't even call this damn thing an album. And it's got two eight-minute versions of I Just Want to Make Love to You and Slow Ride. I like those two songs. Listening to eight-minute versions was painful. Very <laughs> painful. Those songs should be about three and a half minutes and that's it. And at 182, we got the Steve Miller band with fly it like an Eagle. This thing would peak the number three Steve Miller band was huge in the mid seventies. That was their absolute peak. This is their ninth studio album at that time. Bay area brothers love them. They're coming off the Joker. That album sold uh, millions of copies. This one sold 4 million copies and fly like an Eagle has take the money and run, which hit at number 11 on the hot 100. Uh, Rockin' Me, which went number one, Fly Like an Eagle went number two. There's no doubt that Steve Miller was somebody in the mid-70s. So there's the first five albums. I want to kind of get your take, Stephen, on what's your favorite out of the five. For me, the news rides on me a little bit, so I'm going to go with Steve Miller Band. Fair enough. All right, so starting at the top, Bay City Rollers. I had the 45 of Saturday night. I mean, I'm betting a lot of people did. For me, like I said, during 78, I was an AM radio person and AM radio and was really driving the charts at this point. This was way before SoundScan, way before MTV, way before any of that stuff. So radio really did drive the albums chart, you know, and that's why bands would release, you know, four, even five singles sometimes off a record. So I don't know that they can have an album called Greatest Hits. Maybe Greatest Hit would be more appropriate, but maybe they had a couple other that you would recognize. Blue Oyster Cult, Spectres. I've never really connected with Blue Oyster Cult. I like some of the more popular stuff, but they're very hit or miss for me. I don't know why. There are a few bands, a few rock bands out of the 70s, for whatever reason, I just didn't connect to. And even if I didn't connect to them at the time that they were popular, a lot of times as I got older, I went back to them and connected with bands. Led Zeppelin was a band that I didn't connect with early on and, and ended up going back and really connecting with them. Bloister Cult just ne never really connected with me. I had a chance to see them live once, and the reason I was going to see them live was because this uh, heavy metal band called Malice out of uh, Los Angeles was opening up, but they ended up canceling the show. So I didn't get to see them. And it would have been cool to see Malice, but I didn't get to see either one. Cat Scratch Fever, Ted Nugent. I remember this album cover in my brother's collection because it's just crazy Ted with his face on the cover, right? And I knew 
of Ted Nugent. I knew the song, but I wasn't a fan in 78. I can't say uh, I was necessarily a fan. We'll talk a little bit later on about how I became a fan of the Nuge uh, and his music. But this record has some really good stuff on it, not just Cat Scratch Fever. Some of the other deeper tracks are pretty rocking, especially for 78. Fog Hat Live. I know our friend Wrighty loves this album, but Fog Hat is a lot like Blue Oyster Cult for me, which is a band that I just never really connected with. And we've got some listeners to this show that are huge Fog Hat fans. They've given me lists of Fog Hat music to go check out because they don't understand why I'm not a Fog Hat fan. And it's not that I dislike Fog Hat, it's just that I've never really necessarily connected to them or spent a bunch of time with them. I've listened to this live album a few different times trying to get into it, and I'm with Sonny. I kind of like, you know, some of the hits, basically. Fly Like an Eagle, Steve Miller Band, I'm very much a Steve Miller hits guy, and he has a lot of them. And I really love the hits. Like, the stuff that Steve Miller does is a hit. I love it. Steve Miller has a lot of jam bandy blues stuff that he also does. And I don't connect to that Steve Miller. I connect to the hit Steve Miller. And this song or this album has some hits on it that I love. Rock Me, Fly Like an Eagle, love those songs. Take the Money and Run, love them. So great tunes. For me, probably the album that I connect most with on this is going to be Cat Scratch Fever. There's just some good stuff on that besides Cat Scratch Fever. And uh, who doesn't like Wang Dang Sweet Poogie Tang?
So the next set of albums, the first two, one coming in at number 179 and the other one coming in at 157, we got the Eagles with the greatest hits, 71 through 75, and Hotel California. So all the hubbub about the Eagles, it may surprise you, they only have seven studio albums. These two albums, the greatest hits in a studio album, both went number one. They sold a bazillion of albums between studio, live, greatest hits, so they never got to worry about money ever. At least Henley and Fry don't. I don't know about anybody else in that band <laughs> from what we have heard. Both of these were released in 76. You know, the greatest hits one sold over 40 million copies. Hotel California sold over 31 million copies. Two of the best-selling albums in U.S. history. What else can you say? They're the Eagles. At number 50, we got... The Red Rocker, Sammy Hagar. I'm not sure he was he was thinking he was red at this point, and he wasn't the beach bum at this point with musical chairs. So this is really at his peak week at that point. It actually later on got to number 100, and it's Sammy's third solo album. He hasn't really figured out the recipe for mass appeal yet. He's got a fan base, thanks to Montrose and some of his solo stuff, but he hasn't really figured out how to really take advantage and take it over the top. Turn Up the Music, which was a uh, single off this thing, didn't really chart. You Make Me Crazy peaked at number 62, but neither is super catchy. I love Hagar. He's one of my favorites. But those first four or five albums are a little bit tougher of a listen. It gets better every album, in my opinion. And that's just because it connects to more and more people. At number 140, you got Nazareth with Expect No Mercy. This thing peaked out at number 82 and was on the way down. Now, these guys are Scottish too. This was Nazareth's ninth studio album. And there are three albums removed from Platinum Hair of the Dog in 75. So they are actually on the way out. They peaked really early, mid-70s, and they're basically done. And anything you know about Nazareth is because of that. It's occurred to me just in these early goings of the chart that Scottish bands were today's Swedish bands. Yeah, it seems like it, doesn't it? Scotland was pretty pretty big on the charts back then, huh? Yeah, yeah, Thin Lizzy too, right? And I don't know if Thin Lizzy's on this chart. We'll get to it, I guess, if it, they are. Uh, don't get it mixed up. Thin Lizzy, Irish band. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, those oh, got, my God. The, the, I think the Irish and the Scottish get really uptight about yeah. that. <laughs> sorry. Um so anyway, yeah, Nazareth, they had three singles off this thing. Gone Dead Train, Shot Me Down, Place in Your Heart. Never heard of them. Neither did the charts. Nazareth's pretty much dead. How'd they get to number 82? Name recognition, basically. At number 139, Open Fire. No, not the Open Fire you think it is. This is not Y&T. This is Open Fire by Ronnie Montrose. So this was its first week on the chart. So after four albums, having a little bit of success with Montrose, Ronnie decides to release a solo instrumental album. For some ungodly reason, it peaked at number 98. That is unbelievable to me that in 1978, Ronnie Montrose releases an album that peaks at 98 and stays on the charts for 10 weeks. But Van Halen has to wait a fucking month to even smell the charts. That is unbelievable. And I don't know who the hell's buying that Ronnie Montrose album, because I'll be honest with you, this was a tough listen. This is a movie soundtrack, essentially. Uh, it's freaking awful. Freaking awful. <laughs> Go back to doing rock candy. Um, and then at number 136, we got Sticks with Equinox. So this album had peaked out at number 58, was on the way down. It's their fifth studio album. Second album, Sell Gold. And starts kind of their success on AM Records. Lorelei was a hit, peaking at number 27. The second single, which was Light Up, didn't chart at all. But it's really after this 
where they really start hitting the charts super heavy. And they turn from, they never really got away from like the progressive thingy that they were doing, but they do get a little more mass appeal, a little more billboard friendly type uh, songs. So I want to get your take on these six albums for me. I, I can't even believe I'm saying this out loud. Although Hagar's on this list, I guess I got to go with the Eagles 75 to 70, 71 to 75. You have to, there's too many goddamn hits on that. I get it. Yes. I don't normally go to the Eagles, but if it's one of the hits, I don't actually turn it off either because I am a Don Henley, Glenn Fry fan because they hit me in the eighties. Right. So, but some of that shit on some of those albums from the Eagles, like it is a really tough listen, but I can handle the hits. If you like vocals and you like melody, you gotta love the Eagles. There's no way around it. And you just proved that point. And that's why, uh, greatest hits. I think I got two greatest hits that are both diamond certified. So yeah, that's why. So for me, yeah, the Eagles, I'm a huge Eagles fan. Greatest hits. Uh, it seems like it's taken sort of an escape goat to take the greatest hits. Hotel California for me is a, is a great album too, pretty much from start to finish. So either way, those are great records. Musical chairs, Sammy Hagar. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a tough listen. There is some, you can definitely hear where he's trying to go. It's just interesting to me that some of this stuff came after Montrose because some of the Montrose stuff, obviously uh, the really popular stuff, it was really rocking. So it's an interesting musical departure in some of his earlier solo albums. That song that you talked about that was the single You Make Me Crazy, that's straight up Yacht Rock. Go listen to that tune I heard Yacht Rock when I heard that song. And it's funny because he goes on the album, it goes from You Make Me Crazy into this song called Reckless. And Reckless is straight up rocker Sammy Hagar, old Montrose. So, yeah, he's he's trying to discover himself on these few albums, I guess. Nazareth. Nazareth falls into the same category as Blue Oyster Cult and Fog Hat for me. These are bands that I like some of the hits. Like, I love Hair of the Dog. But the rest of the stuff, I just never really connected with Nazareth for whatever reason. Ronnie Montrose, Open Fire, holy shit. Definitely not your Y&T Open Fire, like Sonny said. How this record even charted is beyond me, because this record is straight up brutal. <laughs> uh, God, ugh. It's awful. We, we, need a, we need a pay la. That's what that is. <laughs> and then we get to Equinox and Sticks. So I love Lorelei. I'm actually really surprised Light Up didn't chart because it reminds me a lot of like the hit songs that Yes had at the time. Uh, just these big vocals and um, an uplifting kind of uh, song. It was very of the times. And I would have thought that a song like that would have charted, but it didn't. Yeah, this is basically the turning point for Sticks, where they're coming out of a lot of the progressive stuff from the earlier albums, which for me is a tough listen. I'm a huge Sticks fan, but this is kind of the turning point to where I start to more or less listen to Sticks, and it's right before Tommy Shaw comes into the band, which I'm a Tommy guy, and that's to me that was the missing ingredient and why they had so much success later on is because. Tommy plus Dennis DeYoung equals awesome. So that's what it was. Uh, for me, probably out of these records, 
yeah, I mean, I got to go with one of the Eagles because it's just too much good shit on that greatest hits, even though there is uh, a handful of songs on Equinox that I like. So in the next set, we've got a couple of classic albums here. So at 127 comes Eddie Money with his first album, Eddie Money. This was the peak week so far, but later on, it peaked at number 37. It sold double platinum. This album is the one that everybody knows because it was his best-selling studio album, Baby Hold On. We got to the top 20. Two Tickets to Paradise was a top 40 hit. You Really Got a Hold of Me was in uh, on the Hot 100. So in the end, we miss your money, but you know. Uh, he had a great hit with this album. The next one's interesting. Number 124, Bad Out of Hell, Meatloaf. So at this point, it's been on the charts for 16 weeks, but it's actually going up and down, up and down because his first solo album later peaked at number 14 and this damn thing sold diamond. So the problem was, is that the first couple of singles he released didn't really get going, right? So revved up with no place to go, didn't chart. You took the words right out of my mouth. Nobody really even knows what that is, but it got to number 39, but then you got paradise by the dashboard light. Two out of three ain't bad was a top 20 hit. So of course he starts going off and then this end up being his biggest album. I don't like anything about meatloaf except for actual meatloaf. So, um, <laughs> I don't own this album with mashed potatoes and gravy or, oh, and, and some extra like uh, that, uh, red sauce. Yeah, absolutely. That's called gravy, dude. Yeah. Whatever. At number 119, we got putting it straight by Pat Travers. I don't know a ton about Pat Travers. Um, this was its peak week at the time, but later on it peaks at number 70. And at this point, Pat Travers has Nickel McBrain on drums. Yes. The Iron Maiden drummer was on the charts in 1978. The two singles, Life in London and Getting Better, neither one did very well. I've heard some Pat Travers stuff. It's all about meh to me. It's stuff just doesn't connect with me. At number 105, we've got a super classic album, Boston's first album, debut, sold diamond, absolute classic. It peaked out at number three later on, more than a feeling, top 10 hit, long time, top 40 hit, peace of mind, top 40 hit. They could have released rock and roll band. It would have been a top 40 hit. They could have released smoking. It would have been a top 40 hit. So this is, we're talking about classic album here. And number 101, we've talked about it a little bit before. A uh, heart, little queen. This thing peaked all the way to number nine. So this was Hart's third album. It spawned four singles: Barracuda being the top one, which hit number eleven. Little Queen, which was a top one hundred hit. Kick It Out hit the charts. Love Alive didn't. This album started selling pretty well, went to triple platinum, and then after this album, it is downhill till we get to eighty-five with Hart. At number ninety-nine, we got Double Live Gonzo from Ted Nugent. So it's his second time on this list here. You know, Epic Records ain't stupid. Cat Scratch Fever did well. So what do you do? You release a live album that honestly ends up being the entry point for most Ted Nugent fans that were born in probably mid-60s, right? So you get these folks that are just turning teenager as they come out of the mid-70s. And here's a guy that nobody knows who the fuck Amboy Dukes is, right? Nobody cares that he's got other studio albums. But this double live album is unbelievable. And it later peaks at number 13. It sold triple platinum. Hell, Yank Me, Crank Me hit the top 100. That song is not that great. But the problem is it comes off great live and it ends up doing this thing for Nugent where really the peak of his career was 76 to about 78. And then you don't really hear from him until he ends up at the damn Yankees. He's got all kinds of stuff he's releasing, but none of this stuff is household stuff that people on the street that love rock would know. So out of these six, 
I got to go with my boy, Eddie Money. One, because he's a Bay Area brother. And two, because that album rocks. <laughs> it's quite possible that Ted Nugent has the best song titles ever. Who doesn't <laughs> love Yank Me, Crank Me? That's why that was a hit, because of the title. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness alright so let's start with Eddie Money fun fact I bought No Control from Eddie Money on cassette and when I say I bought it I bought it for a penny because it was one of my choices for Columbia Records and Tapes and I got it because it had Shaken on it <laughs> that's not this album but that's that was my introduction to Eddie Money of course I knew the hits Tickets to Paradise uh, You've Got a Hold on Me and there's some really good stuff Baby Hold On I like Eddie Money but I'm a hits guy for the most part Meatloaf Bad Out of Hell I've never got this album I'm gonna be <laughs> honest with you it's, it's this is just that one song you took the words right out of my mouth with about a minute of like spoken word freaking I I don't know. I I'll say this. I saw Meatloaf once live in a club that holds 500 people. It was not sold out, but it was pretty pretty well packed. He was unbelievable in terms of a showman. He controlled the crowd. So I was impressed with the fact that he really controlled the crowd. That part was impressed. But I went to that show because there were two opening acts that night on that Meatloaf show. One was a band called Blondes, who you know, Nathan from Resist and Bite. Uh, they were friends of mine, so I went because they were the second band on the bill. They had already signed to CBS Records, and they were opening up for Meatloaf. And the first band on that bill that night was a band called Mr. Crow's Garden. Yes, the Black Crows. And that's what they were called back then. Uh, and it was the classic lineup. I think they had just really inked their deal, literally like, they weren't even done recording the first album, but they had just inked their deal and they were opening up on that show here in Atlanta. So that was why I went to see that meatloaf show and I had free tickets and that's always a bonus. Pat Travers. Uh, yeah, I respect the guy, uh, but I don't necessarily connect to his music either. I know there are tons of musicians that just love him. And in fact, whenever he plays on the Monsters of Rock cruise, go to one of his shows because everybody sitting around you are uh, guys in other bands that are playing the cruise. Uh, was it you? Me and Jen went to one of the shows that he did on the Monsters of Rock cruise and everybody sitting behind us was the entire Y&T band. So, you know, they, they love Pat Travers. Boston's Boston. I, there's not a whole lot I can say about this album. It was one of the first albums I bought with my money. I absolutely think this is a perfect album. It's a Desert Island album for me. Even some of the songs they didn't release as singles, like Sonny said, could have been singles. It's just a perfect record for me. Little Queen by Heart has a bunch of great stuff on it. I think it's a strong record, but there's a couple of tunes on there that are really kind of meh and a hard listen for me. But the majority of the record is really good. And Double Live Gonzo, Sonny Pony described me to a T. This was my entry point for Ted Nugent. This is where I came into the Nuge. I had this record. It's a killer live record. Uh, just so much good stuff on this live record. For me, it's a no-brainer in this group of records which one is the record for me. It's got to be Boston's debut album, Perfect Record. I was just thinking Shaken by Eddie Money 
You'd never get away with that today. Because basically the chorus is, she was shaking. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> There's a couple other lines, but it's just the whoa, whoa. I'm like, really? Dude, that was the whole, that was it? I love it. Yeah, but that's a lot of what uh, Desmond Child based his hooks off of, right? The whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Eddie had some hooky choruses. Yeah. There is absolutely no doubt. I'm surprised because I think it has to do with he was not a poster child. Yeah. If that guy had Brett Michaels types looks, he would have been one of the biggest artists in the 80s. Imagine Mitch Malloy singing Eddie Money tunes, right? Yeah. That would have been huge. Well, he's got to sing it with Eddie Money's voice, by the way. I don't want to hear Mitch's voice. Yeah, yeah. Fair. <laughs> fair. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. I'm with you. I see you. I see you. I hear you. No, fair fair uh, assessment of that uh, for sure. And for me, Shaken, what brought me in, because this is when I'm starting to kind of get into guitar-driven rock and roll. For me, Shaken, it was the drums and that riff at the beginning, right? Da-da-da-da. That's what sucks me in, man. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. So let's take a quick break to ask you guys a favor. Do us a favor. Go to Podchaser. Go to Apple Podcast. Go to wherever you listen to this podcast and leave us a five-star review. Help us out because it does help us out. The more five-star reviews we get, the further it pushes the podcast into people's feeds so that they can try us out and see if they like us. Share it with a friend. I know you guys got friends that like rock and roll. Don't be ashamed. Push our podcast off on them. We're just trying to get awareness out there, and that's how you guys can help us. Doesn't cost a dime. Just takes a few minutes of your time, and we appreciate it. Oh, it's free. Shout it out. 
So getting back to the charts, we're actually in the top 100 now. And first one we're going to talk about is Journey's Infinity. So this was the first week they were on the chart. So another set of Bay Area Brothers. Here's their fourth album. And it later ends up peaking at number 21. And it was their best so far. Steve Perry's first album, that doesn't hurt. Albums ended up selling triple platinum. All three singles charted while none of their previous singles had ever charted. Wheel in the Sky went to number 57. Anytime went to 83. Lights went to 68. And this album really launched them to where they are today. I will tell you that if Wheel in the Sky and Lights gets released in 81, both are number one hits, right? So you're, you're kind of catching journey in what they're about to come. They haven't quite become it yet. Number 88, we got Angel with White Hot. It peaked at number 88. This was their peak week. Later on, it actually peaks all the way to number 55. Supposedly another band that Gene Simmons discovered, but this ain't no fucking Van Halen because Angel is brutal. Dude, I like Greg Shufria and I love what he did with the House of Lords. You want to talk about a hard, hard listen. <laughs> I just tried to get about five minutes in on five different songs, right? Listen to a minute of each song. I could not do it. I, I, a brutal, brutal. <laughs> this ain't going to eat my heart out anymore that went to number 44. I couldn't get through the whole song. I, I, wow. I'm just, wow. I, I don't get it, but whatever. Talk about brutal. Good Lord. At number 84 seconds out by Genesis. This is not the Genesis that I can listen to. It's a live album or last album period with Steve Hackett. And afterwards they become a trio. Thank God. But seventies Genesis is brutal. <laughs> I cannot handle two seconds of it. I just, wow. I, I guess Genesis was big. I mean, it peaked at number 47, so obviously it did well, but whatever. At number 60, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, here's their debut album. It had gotten to number 60 so far. That was the peak, but it had peaked later at 55. Took a little time to get going, but every album after this was in the top 30 for the rest of Tom Petty's life. There are three singles on this thing, Anything That's Rock and Roll, which didn't chart, American Girl, which didn't chart, which is amazing, and then Breakdown, which originally didn't chart, but then when the album got going, they re-released it and then it charted and hit the top 40. So that was smart. They probably should have done the same thing for American Girl, but I get it. And number 52, we got the babies with Broken Heart. This thing had charted, uh, it, it topped out at number 34 and it was on the way down. This is a second album by the band. And for whatever reason, they start picking up a fan base in Australia. I don't know why. The two singles, Silver Dreams, went to number 53. Isn't It Time went to number 13 on the Hot 100, but it was Isn't It Time was number one in Australia. John Wade has said himself, countless interviews, that they pulled him off the road because they were doing really well to go put another album together. And then he goes, none of the albums sold gold or platinum? Like, we know albums were selling. There's something funky going on. I think Chrysalis pocketed all that money. There is something funky. Because he goes, there was more and more people coming to the shows, but for some reason we weren't making more and more money. So something happened with the babies. I want to get your take on these five for me. Slam dunk. It's Journey. Journey, that Infinity album, absolutely shows you what they're about to just rock the world with in the next seven years. And Steve Perry coming to the band completely changes what that band is all about. Yeah, Hollywood, you and I are more musically alike than not on this group of records. So 
the baby's broken heart. I'm a big baby's fan. If you haven't had the opportunity, go back in the grown up rock catalog and check out an interview that I did with drummer Tony Brock and guitar player Wally Stocker. It's a really good interview. I just, I like a lot of baby's stuff. I don't like every last song that they've done, but this is an album. Eventually they get Jonathan Kane in the band and they get a little bit heavier uh, and more guitar oriented. They're just, they have some really good melodies and John Waite's such a good singer. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I'm a huge Tom Petty fan. I didn't connect with him early on, but he's somebody that I really grew to like a lot of the material, even further than the countless hits that they've had. And this record, the debut record, I think the following year in 79 is when they released Damn the Torpedoes. And that just goes apeshit. Like there's so many good songs on Damn the Torpedoes. I just like Tom Petty a lot. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers is just a great rock band. They write great songs. Genesis, I'm with you, dude. I can't do the, I cannot do the progressive Genesis. Not my thing at all. I'm definitely a hits guy with Genesis for the most part. And I like a lot of their hits that came out in the eighties. But yeah, this, this progressive stuff and the stuff with Peter Gabriel, I like Peter Gabriel solo, but no. Uh, I can't do it. Seconds out. That's more like a second and it's out because I turned that right on off. White hot angel. Dude, I'm with you on this stuff. I don't get it. Well, and a lot of people didn't get it because otherwise they'd have been huge. Right. I think people, I think a lot of their fan base is basically connected to kiss because they were managed by bill of coin and they had a gimmick, but they didn't unlike kiss. They didn't have the songs to back up the gimmick. Right. I mean, that's the only thing I can point to. So I just, uh, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of Angel uh, and it's nothing against those guys. I just don't connect to the music. And that's really all I can say about that. Journey Infinity. This is where I start becoming a really big Journey fan. I like a lot of this stuff on this record and it's just a solid record. Yep, Steve Perry's coming into the band, but I still like a lot of the stuff that Greg Raleigh uh, sings on as well. And before that, they were much more of a progressive band and I'm not really into the progressive jammy stuff. So for me, probably out of this stuff, it would be be between the Tom Petty and the Affinity, uh, the Journey Affinity. But overall, I just think I connect more with the Journey Affinity than I do some of the stuff on the Tom Petty debut record. All right. So let's get to the next set of albums here. Steve Miller Band makes a second appearance with Book of Dreams at number 42. This thing got all the way to number two at one point. Like we said, Steve Miller is big right now. This album was the band's last multi-platinum album. Three singles, Jet Airliner that went number eight, Jungle Love that went number 23, which I actually like better than Jet Airliner, Swing Town, which went number 17. After this album, they don't smell the top 40 until 1982 when they get a number one hit with Abracadabra. Another song. That if somebody came to a record company right now and said, I got this great idea for a song, Abracadabra, we're going to reach out and grab you. They're laughing the fuck out of the room, <laughs> right? But it hit number one in 82. And I think it's a great song. I'm not making fun of the song. I just think it wouldn't fly today. Number 32, we got an album by Leonard Skinner called Street Survivor. So this thing peaked out at number five at one point. It was their best charting album. It was their fifth album. It's a multi-platinum. And then their next album wouldn't hit the shelves until 1991. Because three days later, the plane crash happens, right? So 
There was three singles released from this thing, What's Your Name, which went to number 13th and was their last top 20 hit. That smell that didn't chart, and you got that right, number 69. So you could have an argument that Leonard Skinner probably would have sold anyway. You can have an argument that the plane crash kind of, you know, is tragic, but then it helps band name recognition because of something that happened. And, you know, we know that when Eddie Van Halen passed, like all of a sudden on iTunes, every top album is Van Halen. Like it happens. But there are some classic songs on here that are good songs. I'm not the hugest Skinner fan, but it does work out. At number 21, we've got another classic album, the debut album by Forner that peaked out at number four at one point. This thing sold five times platinum, and it's a classic in rock history. Three singles, Feels Like the First Time, went to number four. Cold as Ice went to number six. Long, Long Way Home went to number 20. She might be wondering, it's like, well, this is a new band that nobody had heard of, and they're doing really well. This was more like a super group. This was a couple of groups coming together that a lot of people didn't know about, but they knew some of the band members. Think about this. The first song of the first album, was feels like the first time. The second song on the first album is Cold as Ice. Come on. Like that alone, the first two albums you ever hear, the first two songs you ever hear from Foreigner, are those two? Dude, they're they're set up for rock history greatness. Like I don't, you could argue that's in the running of the best first two songs ever, right? So that's amazing. Going from amazing to not so amazing. <laughs> and number 14, we got Kansas with a point of no return. This thing peaked at number seven on un- fucking believable It's the fifth album. All right. Sold quadruple platinum was your last multi-platinum. Thank God. The peak of these guys is 76 to 78, all because of carry on wayward son from the prior album. This thing got three singles out there. Point of no return, which went to 28 dust in the wind, which went to number six, which is their biggest hit by the way. And then portrait. He knew number 64, dude, I've heard this album before. This is not a good album. Like even <laughs> dust in the wind is a tough listen to me. And then, oh, and of course, we can't talk about the 70s unless we got to talk about Aerosmith for some reason. But at number 11, we got Draw the Line by Aerosmith, fifth album. They're coming off Rocks. They're coming off Toys in the Attic. Draw the Line sold double platinum. The three singles, Draw the Line went to 42. Kings and Queens went to 70. Get it up. Didn't go there. And then they're kind of on the decline at this point. All I can say about Aerosmith is meh. Easily my favorite out of these, Foreigner, hands down, drop the mic. That album is awesome. Pony, once again, wrong on the Aerosmith front. Loser. The Kansas and Aerosmith hate. Send your hate mail. I don't care. Wang dang swing pony tang at gmail dot. I'm an idiot. <laughs> All right. So let's see. A Steve Miller band. Again, I'm a hits guy, uh, but I could absolutely see somebody coming with Abracadabra now. It would just be the Ricky Bobby thing. Ricky Bobby and the Magic Man with their hit theme song, Abracadabra. Shake and Bake is dead. We just came up with a new nickname. Oh, that is. It's so good. <laughs> I got a new it's nickname, so the Magic Man. Now you see me? Now you, you don't. don't. That was the stupidest nickname I've ever heard. <laughs> Uh, Leonard Skinner, man, I'll tell you what, there's just a lot of hits on this record. And I really do like a lot of the hits that Skinner had. I have to support Skinner because, I mean, look, they're a Jacksonville band. I like certain Southern rock at certain times. I can't do it all the time, but I do appreciate it. And Leonard Skinner is one of those bands that I really appreciate. Foreigner, I'll give it a 
I mean, what, what what can you say about this album that hasn't already been said? Pony said it all, and I agree 150% with everything that's been said about this debut album from Foreigner. Point of No Return, Kansas. I like the song, Point of No Return. Dust in the Wind is kind of meh, unless you listen to Will Ferrell sing it, and it's great. <laughs> that's a great scene. But other than that, I'm just not a real, I'm not a huge Kansas fan, but I would encourage you to go check out this documentary that was recently done on Kansas because I love music documentaries, and this is a pretty decent documentary and it may give you a newfound respect for Kansas. So I would encourage you to go check that out. I don't know the exact name of it. Just Google Kansas music doc. It just recently came out. It's only been out for a couple of years, I think, but it's decent. And then draw the line from Aerosmith. Like Sonny said, Aerosmith's kind of on their way out. I mean, they had such success with rocks and toys in the attics. No question about it. They're two best albums for sure. So Draw the Line was a little bit of a letdown after that. I like some of the stuff on Draw the Line. I think it probably gets a lot of hate just because it is coming off of Rocks and Toys in the Attic. But there's some decent stuff on it. I love the song Draw the Line. And there's some other good stuff on there too. Sight for Sore Eyes is cool. Overall, I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer for me on this group of albums it's got to be the foreigner debut lock stock and barrel that's just a, that's a fantastic record that can't be argued with that's pretty much how i'm gonna chalk this one up all right before we get to the top 10 i gotta plead with the listeners here a little bit if you went and wasted your money on bad out of hell and made that diamond can you please go buy the foreigner album so it can be diamond thank you <laughs> that is all <laughs> <laughs> all right so on these type of things we share all of the top 10 albums because we want to really get an idea of what is the biggest stuff going on. So we'll talk about them, whether they're rock or not. These 10, some you could label as rock, kind of, kind of, and then some is straight rock and then some kind of bounces out. So at number 10 at this point on February 10th, 1978, this thing would later peak at number nine, Randy Newman's Little Criminals. So reality is Randy's mostly a pop dude. At number nine, and this would later peak at number three, Jackson Brown with Running on Empty. So this is his fifth album, and it's his best-selling studio album, sold seven times platinum. Uh, the title track and Stay were the biggest singles. I would say Jackson Brown's probably, to me, it's like folk rock, but uh, uh, I like Jackson Brown. Sticks, obviously rock. Band's seventh album, Grand Illusion, peaks out at number eight at this point. It goes all the way to six later, sells triple platinum. Was their second with Tommy Shaw. It was their most successful so far. It's got Come Sail Away, which was number 10. Fooling Yourself, which got to the top 40. Those two singles really drove the success. And as you could see, and you heard before, Equinox is on the charts. Because I think what's happening is Grand Illusion is doing so well that some of the older albums are getting pulled into the charts. And that happened with a lot of Van Halen too later on. At number 7, you got the number one peaking album, Rumors, by Fleetwood Mac. It's on the way down, but it's still in the top 10. You got Band's 11th studio album here. They're coming off an album a couple of years prior that also went number one. Rumors has sold Double Diamond. It's easily their best-selling album. Go Your Own Way, Dreams, Don't Stop, You Make Loving Fun, all top 10 hits. Dreams went number one. I mean, what can you say? Is this band rock? Yeah, probably more pop than rock to me, but... Depends on who you're talking to. And then at number six, we've got Neil Diamond and I'm Glad You're Here With Me Tonight. It had peaked at number six. This is his 11th studio album, sold double platinum. The hit single off this thing was Desiree. 
I want to get your take on your favorite out of these five. I'll tell you my favorite actually is Jackson Brown running on empty out of this group. But you would not believe who does an amazing Neil Diamond at karaoke. And it's actually somebody you know. Do you want to take a wild guess? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd be an idiot if I didn't guess Pooney. No, it's actually Tony. Dude, Tony does a mean Neil Diamond on karaoke. You know I'm going to insert something here that's really somebody singing shitty, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> Take it away, sweet Caroline. Oh my God. Okay. So first of all, Little Criminals, the album from Randy Newman. Today, this dude could not release this record. This record was propelled to number 10 because of a song called Short People. Everybody knows that song, right? Short people got no reason. Short people got no reason. First of all, he'd be crucified because all the freaking short people would come out of the woodwork and go, dude, you're giving us shit. Then he writes a song, the second song on the album, that's purely, easily directed at both Sonny and me called You Can't Fool the Fat Man. I don't appreciate that. You appreciate that kind of shit? He's talking about us directly, Pooney. <laughs> Randy Newman, what are you going to do? Jackson Brown running on empty. I love Jackson Brown. I saw him recently open up for James Taylor, and he was amazing. He sounds still perfect to this day. Such a great band behind him and so many hits. I love running on empty. I like a lot of that yacht rock. I listen to it in the morning. Uh, he's more, I don't know, canyon rock, I guess. He comes out of that Laurel Canyon bunch of uh, songwriters. Back in the late 60s or early 70s. The Grand Illusion by Styx. I love that album. I think it's a great record. There's some stuff I know that people kind of hit or miss with, but I, I like the record as a whole, especially when you listen to it from start to finish. Rumors, nothing more can be said about that Fleetwood Mac record. There are so many hits on that record. You understand why it sold as many as it did. And then I'm glad you're here with me tonight, Neil Diamond. I like the Neil Diamond hits. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I don't need to hear Sweet Caroline anymore, but he's got a lot of hits that I, I like. And he's got some hits that he wrote for other people that I like as well. Uh, I think he wrote Last Train to Clarksville for the Monkees, if I'm not mistaken. Love that tune as well. Uh, for me, it's pretty easy. Well, it's a little bit of a toss-up between the Styx album and the Fleetwood Mac album, but I got to go with the Grand Illusion. I'm just, I'm a big Styx fan, so...
So getting to the top five on the Billboard 200 on February 10th, 1978. At number five, in its peak week so far, but it gets to number two later, is Billy Joel, The Stranger. So it's his fifth solo studio album, first one that hit the top ten, and it ends up selling Diamond because it's got Just The Way You Are, Moving Out, Only The Good Die Young, She's Always A Woman. There is absolutely nothing to hate about Billy Joel at this point, and he is a good-looking guy that ends up hooking up with a very, very attractive woman, the model that he ended up marrying, and ends up being a big, big hit in the 80s, right? So for him, it absolutely works out. At number four, we got Queen, News of the World. It had peaked at number four so far, but it gets actually all the way to number three. It's their sixth studio album. They're getting really, really big at this point. They're in the middle of this run that every album they're putting out is going to the top 10. This album had We're the Champions that got all the way to number three as a lead single. So obviously it did very well. Spread Your Wings and It's Late were released, but those two songs actually didn't do that well. At number three, it's Peak Week. Earth, Wind, and Fire, All in All. This is their A studio album, sold triple platinum. Four singles were Serpentine Fire, Fantasy, Jupiter, and Magic Mind. Serpentine was the only one that hit the top 20. But Disco and this kind of like this R&B Motown group thing was still pretty big in the 70s. And it's rolling in from the 60s into the 70s. And Earth, Wind, and Fire kind of made the jump to kind of Disco too. So they had a pretty long-lasting career all the way through the 70s. At number two, and it peaked at number two, was Footloose and Fancy Free by Rod Stewart. You would, I would call Rod Stewart rock most of the time. He has other stuff too. His eighth solo studio album, this thing sold triple platinum. The prior two albums before this went to top 10. The next album, which was Blondes and More Fun, actually goes to number one. And the hit singles off this thing are You're In My Heart, Hot Legs, and I Was Only Joking. Great. I don't know if Hot Legs would make it today on a chart. He might be crucified for hot legs. If you think I'm sexy, I'm not sure. That video sure the hell would be banned. There's no doubt about that. All I have to say to that is, that's just a shame. (laughs) And at number one, we were talking about it before, that disco is kind of on the way out, but a movie really made it hang on for a little while, and that is the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. It's at number one right now. It stays number one for 24 consecutive weeks. And yes, people, if you do the math on that, that's five to six months. One album alone making disco last another five to six months. This album is Diamond. 75% of it's basically the Bee Gees or the Bee Gees involvement. It's the second best-selling soundtrack of all time because believe it or not, Whitney Houston's A Bodyguard is number one. And it's the singles. Come on. How Deep Is Your Love, More Than a Woman, Staying Alive, If I Can't Have You, Boogie Shoes, Night Fever. This is similar to the Footloose soundtrack we were talking about. Just hit after hit after hit. You can't argue that this didn't at least fuel the fire for disco even longer. Disco probably fueled the fire of the movie getting made. And then the movie basically exposes disco to people that aren't already exposed to it. So no doubt... Out of this group, for me, Rod was really close because I really like Rod Stewart, but the Billy Joel album to me is better. Yeah. Wow. I don't know about you, but I owned the double gatefold Saturday Night Fever. You open it up and big uh, disco floor in the middle, I think, with Travolta. That record, man, I'm, I mean, I'm not ashamed to say, and you didn't even mention you should be dancing. I mean, yeah. who doesn't love that one? You should see my moves on that song. They're unbelievable. Anyway, 
<laughs> yeah, this is a great it look, this is a great group of records right here. I'm a big Earth, Wind, and Fire fan, but I don't own any of their individual records. I bought this box set that has, I want to say, three or four CDs in it with all these different hits. So I love that box set. That box set's great. It's got a ton of killer shit on it. So big Earth, Wind, and Fire. What I love about these When Rock Ruled the Charts episodes is that it makes me, it forces me to go and dig into some records I haven't dug into in a while. And Billy Joel's The Stranger, oh my God, I, I bought that record up and looked and started looking at it. And yeah, the tunes like Moving Out and Only the Good Die Young and She's Always a Woman, great shit. But for me personally, the slower songs like Vienna and... um Scenes from an Italian restaurant. I love that shit. This record is stacked. This is such a good record, man. News of the world, big Queen fan, no doubt about it. And there's some great stuff on this record as well. Uh, is it my favorite Queen record? Probably not, but there's a ton of great stuff on it. And then Rod Stewart, I'm a, for the most part, I'm a hits kind of guy with Rod Stewart. There are some deeper tracks that I like. And there's some great stuff on this record. I mean, you're in my heart. I love it. Hot legs. Love it. I was only joking. Love it. Love it. Love it. So all really good stuff for me personally, man, it's really hard to get away from the Saturday night fever soundtrack because that record is really good, but I got to go with the stranger, man. I'm with you. The stranger is such a great album. And for me to give praise to ballads, I mean, that should tell you everything you need to know. And that that record is super strong uh, because it is songs like Moving Out and uh, Only the Good Die Young that attracted me to Billy Joel originally. So to give you an idea of how the debut Van Halen album did on the charts. So like we said, it was a month before it even charted. So it waited till March 11, 78 to enter the chart at 149 on the Billboard 200. A month later, by April 15th, it was at number 34. By May 20th, it had peaked at number 19. So obviously when it got on the chart, it started moving pretty fast. 11 weeks on the chart, it's at its peak at number 19. You, you fast forward to September of 78, it's at 48. You get to Thanksgiving of 78, it's at 109. It hangs on. And then in March of 79, after VH2 gets released, it bounces back up to number 78. You get to July 79, it's back up to number 65. You fast forward to March 15th of 1980, it's been 100 weeks, and it's still on the charts at 185, and it finally drops off the charts on September 13th, 1980, after 126 weeks. Do the math, that's two and a half years for an album that it took a month to even sniff the charts. Yeah, I imagine that, I guess if I'm doing it in my head, I imagine that that was driven by the success of Dance the Night Away because that was their first successful quote-unquote single. So I'm guessing that Dance the Night Away off Van Halen 2 piqued everybody's interest and they revisited Van Halen 1 at that point, probably, and said, holy shit, this is a great album. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right, so you know we got to connect everything to KISS. You wanted the best, but you got the best! The hottest band in the world, KISS! It's time for your KISS Stork moment on Growing Up Rock. 
So for the historic moment, while Van Halen's debut album is charted from March 11, 78, all the way to September 13th of 1980, two and a half years, it survived the four solo albums by Kiss, Dynasty, and Unmasked. Okay, so Kiss had been on and off the charts all the way through that with a bunch of different albums. But on the release date of Van Halen's debut album on February 10th, 78, there was a Kiss album on the charts. It was at number 23. It had actually peaked at number seven and had been on the charts for 12 weeks. And no, it was not Love Gun. It was Alive 2. So to keep it simple, we're going to go with the opening track. So here, from 1977's Alive 2, here is Kiss with Detroit Rock City. This is classic from Paul.
classic and bombastic. So this was actually my personal first live Kiss record. I got a double cassette of this, two cassettes in two different cases packaged uh, side by side. And I don't know how you feel, but for me personally, I actually kind of like a live tube better than the first alive simply because I like the new songs on the fourth side. And I like some of these, um, some of these tunes live, like some of the stuff, uh, the, from love gun and from, uh, rock and roll over. Yeah. I'm in a similar boat. I like a live two better than a live also partially because now all four guys are singing. Of course, the fourth side having the new songs, especially rocket ride and all American man. Come on, dude. Mm -hmm. I actually like unplugged better than both of these though. Yeah, I know you do. This is Kiss at their pinnacle, really. I mean, their pinnacle oh, yeah. of of live. This is this is it, uh, and it's just it's bombastic to hear some of those bombs going off and stuff. I, yeah, I like this record a lot, and this version of Detroit Rock City is killer uh, for sure. And in fact, I think we we use the opening to this uh, this album and Detroit Rock City at the beginning of our intro for the historic moment. If I'm not mistaken, that's where I took that from. So before we wrap up the episode, you know, I like to do a little bit of research. So February 10th, 1978, we are one month removed from the Cowboys beating the Broncos 27 to 10 in Super Bowl 12, baby. Yeah. Portland Trailblazers have the best record in the NBA because they got this center nobody's heard of. Some guy named Bill Walton. I don't know what he ended up doing later, but uh, they had the best record in the NBA. Uh, Major League Baseball is still in spring training at this point. The number one movie in the U.S. at this point was not Saturday Night Fever. It was actually Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Two weeks later, Saturday Night Fever goes on a five-week run for being the number one movie. Uh, but it didn't hit number one until its 10th week, so it took a while to get going. I saw Close Encounters in the theater and hated it when I saw it because it was super boring. But later on, as I got older, went back and, and watched that movie, and I enjoy it now. It's a pretty good movie. But back then, when it first came out, I wasn't a huge fan of that that uh, movie. It was a little boring to me. Yeah, I'm not into sci-fi at all, so I didn't like it at all. The number one song in the U.S. was Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. That probably doesn't surprise you. But what might surprise you? What was the number one TV show? Steven, you want to take a shot at what the number one TV show was on February 10th, 1978. And I'll help you. It was not 60 minutes. <laughs> I was just going to say okay? 60 minutes. <laughs> I'll help you there because you will default to that. The Carol Burnett show or Barney Miller. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you're going with? Sure. It was not. Love Boat. It was actually Happy Days. Ah, damn it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And Laverne and Shirley was on and off number one, too. The Fonz. Yeah, really good <laughs> stuff. No, great. I love doing these uh, when rock rolled the charts. I think it, you know, when else are we going to talk about Pat Travers, <laughs> right? It's probably, you know, we're not probably going to talk a ton about Leonard Skinner because, you know, I don't like him. We sure the fucking going to talk about Ronnie Montrose solo albums ever again. Like there's just certain things that we won't <laughs> talk about any other way. Or Randy Newman <laughs> and his offensive songs towards short people and fat people. I don't appreciate it. Fuck you, Randy. <laughs> wow 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 no yeah. but I, I like doing these and it's just interesting to me that because they're new how big van halen becomes but because foreigners considered a super group they're hitting the chart right away but van halen has to wait but then in the end 
that album sell, sells six times more of the copies than Foreigner did. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's fun because, I mean, these episodes, they really do encompass growing up rock, right? I mean, this is, uh, you get to take a trip back and see what was going on. And even for me, like in 78, like I said, I wasn't fully engulfed in music in 78. I was still buying 45s. I was listening to some of the stuff from my brothers and sisters and my parents, which encompassed everything from Lawrence Welk and Big Band to Jethro Tull and Led Zeppelin. So, you know, it's everything in between. So it's really cool to be able to not only see what was going on within the charts, but also dig into some of these albums. And again, this is where, and I'm not going to get on a Spotify high horse, but this is where the streaming services are a benefit to somebody like me. I don't own specters by blue oyster cult or bay city rollers or randy newman i don't own that stuff but i can go and listen to it and get insight to what we're talking about here and so it, it's just a benefit to me i still go out and purchase and support the bands that i need to do that to but i don't think i'm gonna really go out and purchase little criminals by randy newman dude or ronnie montrose's solo album for sure for shizzle that shit ain't getting purchased not unless i need some kindling wood fire kindling ronnie montrose solo album you get it free with any same sammy hagar album that you buy actually they give you a five dollar discount and give you the montrose solo album jesus god rest his soul man i'm sure he was a big influence on a lot of people and for that i appreciate i know that he was a big help to tesla early on in their career and thank god you know but yeah that solo record brutal (laughs) so yeah uh i would love for the listeners to send us some ideas on what dates you think are important in rock history we got some ideas but you know, you know how these episodes run now. So if there's a specific rock date in history where something happened and you want to kind of know what the charts look like at that point, yeah, let us know. Yeah. And it's like I said, it's less about what we're actually, you know, what the day is and more so about what was going on around that day. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just fun episodes, man. As always, We appreciate everybody that's tuning in and listening to these episodes. We hope they're as entertaining to you guys as they are to both Sonny and I. We enjoy doing these episodes and we enjoy doing the research and taking a trip back in time and looking at some of this stuff. So thank you again for tuning in. Thank you again for all the support. Go out there, leave us a five-star review. It helps us out regardless of whether you think it does or not. And it only takes a couple of minutes of your time. And uh, hey, like always, For the last three or four years, we will have another episode for you guys next week. So please tune in. Thanks. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.